During these evening sermons, it's our goal to present to you basic truths of the Christian faith, and tonight we're looking at Westminster Shorter Catechism, questions 41 and 42, and I really can't um, say a lot about what happened um, in previous sermons. I mean, obviously I can speak to them. I don't want to repeat them. I just want to tell you that those previous sermons really helpful, especially in what Pastor Dan said last time we looked at the catechism about the moral law. If I can just summarize a little bit piece, a little piece of that, the moral law goes beyond, it goes beyond simply its binding nature for Christians. The moral law transcends um, us as Christians, and it applies to all of humanity. And tonight, I want to read for you questions and answers 41 and 42 that explain for us, well, where do you find that moral law, this law that binds all of humanity? Question 41 is, where is the moral law comprehended or where is it summarized? The answer is the moral law is summarily comprehended or it's summarized in the Ten Commandments. Question 42, what is the sum of the Ten Commandments? Or let me put it this way, if you're wondering what are the Ten Commandments about, the answer is the sum or the summary of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. I'd like to look in our Bibles tonight at a passage that includes, or rather I should put it in the right order, I guess, the passage from which that last answer is given, and that's in Matthew chapter 22. So if you would turn in your Bibles there, you can follow along. Matthew chapter 22, I'll be reading verses 34 through 38. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The idea of depending there in the old King James is, on these two hang the law and the prophets. I always <laughs> remember as a child listening to that and thinking, literally them hanging from a rope. It was not a, not a good picture. The idea is there that the rest of the Bible, what it requires of us is really summarized or it depends on, it rests on what we find here in loving God above all else and our neighbor as ourselves. Tonight I want you to think with me for just a few minutes about what he was like when I was a child. Some of you are too young to remember this, but before, there were even photographs, there were slides. And when my father was in the military, he took a number of slides. He served during the Vietnam era, and he took slides of his time in the military, the camper he served. And I remember a certain set of slides that captured his time in basic training when he entered the military. There was always a story that went along with those slides. My dad would narrate as we watched these slides. And one of the slides, I remember him saying a couple of times, this is where I serve my basic training. 
And for the first week, most of the guys in basic training cried themselves to sleep. (laughs) I remember thinking to myself, especially when I was 13 or 14 year olds, what a bunch of wimps. But the reason I tell you that is because his entrance into military training was all about making sure that these soldiers would do what their commanders said. If you've been in the military, I have not, but I assume it's similar to going through a police academy. Your superior wants to make sure at every moment when a command is issued, you will follow that command without hesitation, without question, and to the extent of which that command is given. The command is given, you do. If we can bypass your heart and your mind, all the better. You say, I do. I would imagine for many Christians, the law of God sounds very similar. God says, we do. Simple as that. God as our commander, we are his soldiers. That's even language that we use. So whatever he uh, says, we simply do. No questions, no hesitations. We simply do what he says. And then we read in our catechism, As summarizing Matthew chapter 22, the verses I read, that the obedience that God calls us to is far more than what is found in my illustration. In fact, I would guess for many of us who have grown up in churches where there was a heavy stress on just doing the right thing, the notion that Jesus would say to the man who tested him, it's not first of all about any particular commandment or whole set of commandment, it's really about your heart love. It strikes us as wrong. How could Jesus so obviously miss that the point of the Christian life is to do the right thing? The answer is that the Christian life following Jesus Christ was never first, primary, it never began with simply doing the right thing. It begins with the heart. There are three things I want to say to you tonight from these verses about a, wife, a wide life commitment that starts in the heart. And it begins with the test that's found in verses 34 through 36. We did not read the portion of the Sadducees testing Jesus. You should simply know these were Sadducees. They had different opinions about some things, especially the resurrection that they did not share with the Pharisees. And the Sadducees had done their best to try to create a theoretical scenario that would trip up Jesus and discredit him. And Jesus responds to them in such a wise way that the verse before our section says, and when the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. They were amazed at the wisdom of Jesus. So now comes the Pharisees. And one Pharisee in particular lays before Jesus a test. You'll see in our text, it's actually called a test. And the Pharisees come in verse 35 and ask Jesus what would have been a very common question. It would be a very common test. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. And here's the question, teacher, which one... Of all the laws in the Old Testament is the greatest commandment. Which one is first? This is not a question. 
about what commandments are up there. It's a question about the greatest commandment of all. The rabbis had divided the Old Testament law into 613 commandments, 248 of them positive, and 365 negative. And there were long and extensive debates among them about which one of the commandments were most weighty. If you want to know the opposite end of the spectrum... I would say among many of them, the lightest commandment was found in Deuteronomy 22, verse 6, which says, you shall not take a mother bird along with her young. They said, that one's not that weighty. But the most weighty, of course, is far more attached to that question. If a person were to say this commandment is more important than the others, would that not slight the other commandments? Would not Jesus' answer to this question demonstrate once and for all that he disregarded portions of the law? And if he disregarded portions of the law, how could he be the promised Messiah who would keep the law perfectly? How is it that Jesus can answer this question? This expert in the Old Testament law must have believed he found a way to trip up Jesus, to test him, to try him, and find him wanting. But before we read Jesus' question, I want to give some deference to the man who's asking Jesus this question. It's not a bad question. It's not only a question for the time in which Jesus lived. I think, in a certain way, it's an appropriate question for us as well. Everyone needs to ask this question, what do I really have to do in order to be a follower of God, to please God, or to put it in the language of the catechism, to fulfill the moral law of God, this law that binds every single human, what do I really need to do? What is required of me? What is the bottom line? I know that you read this passage with me, but I want you to try to pretend like you didn't. Think of what comes most naturally to your mind if I were to say to you, what's the most important thing for you to do? Maybe there's something like coming to church every Sunday. Maybe it's something else like being obedient to my parents. Maybe it's about how much we donate to the church. Maybe it's memorizing Scripture. Maybe it's taking care of your family. Maybe it's working hard. Maybe it's being a good father or mother, being a faithful friend. Whatever it is, we have built into our expectations things that are primary in our minds. Now the question I ask for you, I think that is inherent in the question the Pharisee is asking is if you kept all these and others beside, could you say that you've done what is most important to God? Have you accomplished what He requires? Have you kept the commandment that is the bottom line? Have you done what God really wants you to do? That leads to the second thing I want you to hear tonight. Beyond the test is the twist in Jesus' answer. This comes in verses 37, 38, and then skip a verse and go to verse 40. Jesus says in verse 37, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And then he says in verse 40, On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I already explained sort of in jest what the last is about. Everything else 
is really captured by this commandment and the one we'll look at in just a moment. I want you to know, if you don't know already, that Jesus didn't pull these two commandments, this one and the one that we'll consider next, out of his hat. These are actually commandments found in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, after the Shema in which we hear the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's one God to serve, serve him alone. In Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It would not have been a surprise to the rabbi and the others who listened that Jesus would refer to Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. And as they heard Jesus' answer, they may have thought that Jesus walked right into their trap by naming Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 as the most important commandment. But the twist is that Jesus is actually not. Because how you understand Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 is an answer to the question, what is the greatest commandment? What does God really desire of us? How do we know if we're really doing what God calls us to do? Is not answered simply by a reference to Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. It's how you understand what Jesus is saying. I do not think I misrepresent the rabbis at this time when I say that the rabbis thought of Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 and its commandment to love like all of the other commandments in the Old Testament. It's something that you had to do. It's not that you wanted to love God. That's really irrelevant. It's that you were commanded to love him. Further, that love was even considered by some to be meritorious, which means when you love, God became indebted to you for doing what he commanded. If you would follow his commandments, including the commandment to love, at a certain point, God would be obligated to you. You have a relationship with God in which you do your part and he will do his part, and together we will accomplish eternal bliss. But that's not the way that Jesus refers to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. The love that Jesus refers to is not an emotion. It is not an act of obedience that requires a response from God. I want you to hear this tonight, my friend, even if the rest of this sort of passes you by. Maybe you had a long afternoon, you had a great dinner, and you're still a little sleepy. This is the part I really want you to hear. What Jesus says in response to this question, what is the most important commandment? What does God really want from you? Is not that you love God in a way that merits or obligates God to respond to you. No, rather, the love that Jesus is talking about is itself a response to God. Our love to God is an understanding of who God is and what he has done for us in the Old Testament anticipating, in the New Testament, and in 2023 in reflection of what God has done for us in his own Son. It is the deepest commitment of the human heart's to rest and trust in the Savior who has given himself in our place. 
It is not to say to God, I will love you because you command. It is rather, I will love you in obedience to a command because I desire to. Viewing what you have done for me already in your son. It is a response to salvation, not a reason for it. Love is what moves and motivates, not what is exacted from us. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Romans 13 verse 10 says, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Rather, love is a fulfillment of the law. In both of these, we're called to way more than simply responding out of obedience. We are called to respond with a heart of love. What Jesus says to the religious lawyer then is not simply another command to keep. It is the heart of our response to God. It's not about doing one thing. It's rather the most comprehensive way of summarizing a life that is resting and relying in the gracious work of our God for us in Jesus Christ. It calls you to an answer to the question, are you committed to God with everything that is in you because you're hoping that if your commitment is strong enough, you'll be okay? Or do you respond with love for your God because you have seen what God has done for you? Why do you follow Christ? That's the basic question. Is it the thing that you've been told you ought to do or you're a bad person? It's a sort of thing that you expect that others would want you to do. You expect God would want you to do it. Therefore, you do. Or do you look at the God who's created all things? The God who would even call the one whose heart is not right with him to still love him. That is to know him as a creator, to trust him, to follow him, not just to do, but to actually respond in love. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we have more than that. We have not only the work of God in our creation, we also have the work of Jesus Christ in our salvation. If I can say it again, the motivation that we have for obeying our God is a motivation that ought to come from a heart of love, that looks at what God has done for us and says, out of my sense of how great your work is for me, I will follow you in obedience. If I could just make what is a very easy, maybe even some of you would Consider trite comparison. Every parent knows the difference between a a child that responds out of a sense of duty and a child that responds out of a sense of love and devotion. You know the difference. So does God. He knows the difference. As Jesus says in verse 40, on this love, the entirety of the Old Testament law and the prophets is built. Without this deepest love, commitment to God, without that love, the rest of the Bible will not make sense. It will have its purpose rooted out of it. 
Listen, it is possible for you to go through all the motions of being a Christian, doing all the right sorts of things, making sure that others know that you're the right kind of person. But if there is no love for God, then your Christian life, really, my friends, is a house of cards. It is a foundationless faith, a cotton candy Christianity. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, with everything that is in you. Love your God. Which brings me to the third thing I want to tell you from this passage, and this is in verse 39. There's the test, the twist, and now the additional truth. Jesus says in verse 39, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Again, I would point out to you that this is a direct quotation from the Old Testament, this time from the book of Leviticus. And it is true, as the Bible says, that we should love our neighbor. In fact, Jesus goes further in the Sermon on the Mount to say in Matthew 5, verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Don't just love your family members, but be willing to love your enemies. So we could conclude without question that Jesus was confirming the necessity to follow what God says, love those around you. But Jesus summarizes the moral law by not simply reiterating a commandment. The love your neighbor has an important connection and dependence upon Jesus' call to love our God, and it is this, 1 John 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For who does not love, if he does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? The obvious answer that 1 John is seeking from us is, he doesn't. You see, there is an absolute connection between what we will most deeply be committed to, that is our love for God and what we do. If we love ourselves the most, that will be obvious in how we spend our time and our money and our energy and where we place our love. On the other hand, if we love God above all else, what he commands, including loving our neighbor, we will not only do, but we will look to him to equip us to do what often is very, very difficult. It also means that we do not look at human relationships simply as most do with a quid quo pro attitude. That is, if you love me, I'll love you in response. I will not love you more than you love me. Instead, we have the ability to love, as Jesus calls in the Sermon on the Mount, to even love those who would persecute us. We can love them, not because our love is simply a reciprocation of their love, but because our love comes from the deep well of love that God has given us in Jesus Christ. If I can make, again, one easy application... If you live in a relationship, perhaps a marriage or friendship, where you say, the problem in our marriage is that my spouse does not love me enough and does not do what I'm asking, if only my spouse would change, our relationship would be better. I would not disregard that maybe that is true. 
But what Jesus tells us is that it is possible to love that person not because that person is all that they ought to be. I am sure they are not. But because we love as Christ has first loved us or we love because Christ equips us to love. I'm a little bit hesitant to say this, but I believe it to be true that we too often approach God with the rabbi's perspective. We want to know what God requires of us. We have come to the conclusion that all we need to do is keep God's commandments and everything will be okay. That is not true. The church is better off if filled with former drug addicts, prostitutes, felons, all those the world would say, ah, don't even bother applying for a job. Again, I say the church is better off with those that society would say are the most difficult to include. The church is better off if we are consisting of those that the society would disregard, if we love God, then if the church is filled with people who go through all the right motions and look the right way, but have no love. The question is one of the heart. Where is our deepest commitment? I cannot ask you more than Jesus asks in this question by extension. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength? And is that love equip you to serve and to love those around you, even those who may seem the most difficult to love? Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the sum of the law of God. Amen. Our God, we come to your word looking for the help of your Son through his Spirit. I will confess, as one who is also your worshiper, not only preaching, but also needs the truth of your word, that often my tendency is to not love as I have been loved by your Son, but to love as others are loving me, at least as I perceive that they are, and often to the degree that I perceive they are not. Lord, transform us by your Spirit, that we would see that Jesus is one who has loved us with a love that is incomparable. There's no one who knows us more completely than our God. And therefore, there can be no love which is deeper and richer and more fulsome than the God who has loved us in his Son when we were still sinners. Lord, this is the greatest love the world has ever known. Lord, move us not by a sense of obligation and fear. Move us with a sense of the greatness of our God and his work for us that our love would be one in which we respond to the greatness of our God. Father, we ask you this. 
In Jesus' name, amen.